Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, November 8th. Thinking about installing a heat pump? Worried about how it would perform in the extreme cold of an Alberta winter? We get some insight into the cost, performance, and reliability of the heat source from Belinda Gilby, co-founder of Bondi Energy. Two weeks ago, Canadian grocers testified before Parliament about plans to stabilize prices. Now that the November 2nd government deadline has come and gone for the grocery giants to take some action, where is the relief for consumers? We tackle the topic with Janet Music from the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. And finally, it's a unique program which provides gently used jewellery to women's shelters across Canada. We learn all about this year's Gems for Gems jewellery drive from the founder herself, Jordan Guildford. There's been a lot of talk about heat pumps in the news this week. So if you're thinking about installing a heat pump, but you've got some questions, we're going to break down what you need to know right now with Belinda Gilby, president and co-founder of Bondi Energy. Good morning, Belinda. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. First off, can you explain to us exactly what is a heat pump? How does it work? Sure. So a heat pump is very similar to an air conditioner, but it can work in reverse and do heating as well. So it's a type of HVAC or heating and cooling system all in one that does heating and cooling in a really energy efficient way. All right, uh, let's talk about the cost of said heat pump. We know that the cost of everything has gone up, so it's uh, not exactly apples to apples when you compare it to a furnace, I would think, uh, you know, even a few years ago. Uh, But how does it compare to the the cost of a furnace for, let's say, a a 1,500 square foot house? Yeah, so for a 1,500 square foot house, um, you're probably looking at between ten to fifteen thousand dollars, all in. Um, of course, it depends on which model. If it's a cold climate heat pump, um, if it's there are different models, you know, different prices, but that's a good range. Okay, so that leads me to my next question because we've heard all oh, heat pumps don't work in Alberta; it's too cold. But there are different heat pumps. So there are heat pumps that work down to negative twenty-five, negative thirty degrees Celsius. So in a really, really cold environment like Alberta or the northern provinces. You might need to have some supplemental heat source, sort of a backup electric resistance heat that only comes on when it's the coldest cold to stay in the winter. But the idea is for the majority of the time, you can get most of the work done by the heat pump. And we talked about the cost, the upfront cost, but yes, we want efficiency and we want to, you know, do what we can to go green. How long would it take? Do we have any stats and facts and figures on how long it would take to recoup that higher cost than a furnace? I think you said $10,000. Yeah, I mean, if you're using, a, you know, an old furnace that's not very efficient, you're probably going to save right away in terms of your total utility costs, your total energy costs. If you have a high-efficiency furnace, it's a bit newer. Um, you know, we think around 2025, maybe by 2026, it's going to flip, and it's going to be more economical to run a heat pump to heat and cool your home than a standard furnace and air conditioning unit. Can I step back and ask you this question, Belinda? So is every yeah. heat pump also an air conditioning unit? It is, yep. So it works um, bi-directionally. So in the wintertime, it's pulling heat out of the outdoor air and putting it inside. And then in the summer, it's pulling the heat out of your indoor space and rejecting the heat to the outside. If you think of your fridge blowing hot air or your air conditioner unit blowing hot air in the summer, that's what's happening. So you're buying a a furnace and an air conditioner. So that does make that price, it makes it a little bit more understandable, right? Exactly. It's it's all in one. You know, it is marginally more expensive than your standard system, but it's more energy efficient. And in the future, and even now, for some situations, it's more economical to run. 
Wow, incredible. Uh, well, I understand that, you know, this has uh, gained popularity, and uh, I also understand we had supply issues, for example, when it came to furnaces because of the, the sheet metal and, and the pandemic put a dent in that, so to speak. But when it comes to heat pumps, because we have such renewed interest in them, are they easy to get, or is this something that the supply is an issue? Oh, yeah, they're, they're easy to get. You know, all the major manufacturers are either setting up manufacturing shop in North America or they're heavily stocked because this is the way the industry is going. It's the future of HVAC. So there's um, we have never experienced any supply chain issues, thankfully, you know, to date. And we're hearing about it in the news because the federal government is promoting it as being cleaner and greener. So can you talk about that side of things for sure? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we know that, you know, the burning of um, natural gas and fossil fuels for space heating in buildings is a huge contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. But a heat pump is entirely electric and it's about three to 400% efficient. So if we're going to decarbonize and electrify our infrastructure, we're talking EV cars, solar, renewable energy, um, decarbonizing buildings is a key function of that, whether it's a house or a commercial building. And a heat pump is the way um, you're going to achieve that. Belinda, you mentioned earlier when I asked you about, you know, the savings uh, down the line, because the initial cost is higher than a furnace. We, we understand that. Um, mm-hmm. And you say that if you had an old furnace and you replaced it with a heat pump, you might notice the savings very quickly. But as far as enough savings to have, have that unit paid off, is that something that we can itemize in, in a number of years or is it a case-by-case basis? It's a case-by-case. But to give you a rule of thumb, um, we typically see around a four-year payback for that initial investment, you know, the okay. extra cost. Belinda, we just we get the odd text in saying, you know, it's not viable in Alberta. So I just want to go back to that again, that there are yeah. different heat pump options available for different climates for here in Alberta, for Saskatchewan, for Manitoba, for example, we get a different cold out here on the prairie. So it would actually work for us. Yeah, absolutely. So it's important to, you know, ask your contractor or your supplier to make sure they're stacking the right equipment that will give you enough heat where you're located. And like I mentioned before, you might need um, some supplemental or backup heat source, either with a a smaller furnace or an electric uh, heat system. Interesting. Again, is super timely mm-hmm. and a lot of questions surrounding uh, such a, well, new technology to us, uh, you know, out here because we have not heard of much about heat pumps. Thank you so much for your time, Belinda. We appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much. That is Belinda Gelby, president and co-founder of Bondi. That's B-O-N-D-I Energy. Remember back when the heads of the major grocery chains testified before Parliament discussing ways to find grocery price relief for consumers? Well, the November 2nd deadline has come and gone, so where is the relief? Joining us to talk about it is Janet Music with the Agri-Food Analytic Lab and Faculty of Management at Dalhousie University. Good morning, Janet. Thanks for being back with us. Good morning. Appreciate it. The Parliamentary Committee asked grocers to submit their plans to tackle the rising food prices by November 2nd. Have we heard anything about that? Well, if we have, it hasn't really made a huge impact, has it? No. Uh, Certainly, we haven't really heard much of anything other than some complaints by Loblaw's head that they're you know, reticent to sign on to the Code of Conduct, which was one of the five steps that the government said they were going to take. So certainly, you know, I think people are, are kind of scratching their heads and looking around when they're at the grocery store, wondering where those 
uh, you know, price increase reliefs are at this point and, and you know, kind of crickets, I guess. The crickets, could this be, you know, I know that uh, food and, uh, you know, being at the Agri-Food Analytics Lab, that's your area of specialty, Janet. But could this be the news cycle in the sense that we're all talking about, you know, the carbon tax and, and some relief that, we, you know, this has just kind of been buried at this point? Because I, I would think that the government should be addressing something since they did draw that line in the sand. You're right, you know, and I think uh, the federal government would be looking for a win at this point, right? You know, the news hasn't really been favorable to them, and I, I don't think you can really blame the news cycle for that. So I think they would be, you know, shouting from the rooftops if something was going to happen. Now, you know, if you recall last year, uh, Loblaws came out, Galen Weston was on TV talking about how they were going to freeze prices over the holidays to help Canadians. and. And at that point, we got to see kind of a rare uh, sniping, I think I would call it, from another grocery chain that said, you know, that is status quo. You know, we do that every year regardless. So, uh, you know, it's hard for consumers to trust, even if they're going to make a big announcement that prices have been frozen on some key products, because... You know, we already have heard from others that this is this is something they do anyway. It's an industry standard. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think there's still a long way to go to really get Canadians back on board and trusting grocery retailers at this point, because regardless of what they say, there's a lot of side eye, I would call it, yes. going on, even from people who are studying the industry. Janet, is there more the government can do, do you think? Well, you know, it's interesting. We see a lot of people calling for the government to step in and regulate prices. And certainly that happened in extraordinary circumstances in the past, but not generally to, uh, you know, retailers, you know, just a subsection of retailers, like, you know, people want them to freeze prices at Sobeys Empire and Loblaws. And, and that's really not been done in this country. So it would be a very extreme uh road for them to take I, I wouldn't even know how they would go about that certainly people are, are asking for that though and and i think there are other issues that are at play here there's also this kind of housing and rising interest rates problem that you know i think we talk about them separately but they're really kind of two sides of the same coin in which prices are rising because of interest rates and are impacting both housing costs and food. And people now are are so squeezed in the middle, you know, trying to pay for their shelter that they're actually spending less overall on food. And where is that gap coming from? Is that coming from nutritious food? Is that coming Mm -hmm. from calories? So there's a lot of big questions that need to be asked, and it's, it needs us to step back, the federal government, and look holistically at what's happening, not just at grocery retailers, but across all of the money that we spend to keep ourselves alive and, and warm uh, in the winter, which is now going to be a, kind of this compounding issue for people because we're going to have to turn our heat up. And, and where I am in Nova Scotia, that's a pretty expensive endeavor. Yeah. Janet, you know, I, I know we're laser focused on our own issues and uh, rightfully so taking care of what's happening in our backyard. But obviously, we're not the only one going through this tumultuous time with higher prices when it comes to food products. Can we look at other countries who are tackling the issue for, for some cues on how to do this? Yeah, you're, you know, you're absolutely right. We actually don't even have the highest food price inflation of, of similar countries. You know, we're only second highest 
you know, in the United States is, is kind of coming out ahead in that. What's interesting, though, when we look at other countries, we tend to look at, you know, places with similar government structures to ours, so the UK, New Zealand, Australia. Uh, the United States has got a different model when it comes to uh, food. They have much more competition in the marketplace, which was one of the five items that Minister Champagne said that, you know, he was going to really push forward in the coming year to kind of help bring those prices lower. So it'll be interesting to see if they're able to do that. But when, when we look at the UK and when we look at other countries to see what they're doing, certainly they do have a code of conduct. Uh, New Zealand and Australia, I'm thinking off the top of my head, their code has teeth. So, you know, the code of conduct we're talking about here in Canada does not have any, you know, it's a lot of carrots, not a lot of sticks, as it were. And so the other thing to keep in mind when we're looking at other countries, and I think Minister Champagne referenced France, uh, certainly France is a bit of a different government structure, but they also have a lot of uh, opportunities and, and strengths that Canada doesn't have. They don't have our weather. They have a long-established agricultural program, and they have a lot more people and a lot more closer uh, trading partners than we do. And so we have to look at something that's unique for Canada, maybe taking the best of what our, our trading partners have and really applying a Canadian lens to it. And and. You know, is that is the government up for that? Uh, it remains to be seen, I think. Janet, switching gears a little bit before we let you go, wanted to touch on this because it's something I've noticed in the grocery stores, or uh, you know, as recently as yesterday. But as we head into the Christmas season, uh, people love to bake Christmas treats. Still, a sugar shortage it looks like because the the shelves are bare. Yes, so you know we love our sugar, especially around the holidays, and and there's a strike happening actually. There's a Rogers strike for sugar that actually took place starting September 28th. So we're going quite a ways in here with supply slowly depleting as we get closer and closer to Christmas. And and you know as consumers we tend to look at the shelves and think, oh my goodness, you know we better stock up, and and we tend to kind of engage in hoarding behaviors which we don't we don't want to encourage but the other side of this is you know small businesses especially are going to get hit harder by this because they're going to have to import sugar from more expensive sources probably from the united states and so you know now we're going to have to see prices uh, increase as their input mm. uh, costs increase which is you know not a really great news story for christmas holidays and i think one of the things that we could see, we, we might anticipate seeing that retailers actually limit the amount of bags of sugar people can buy so that they can serve as many consumers before the holidays as possible. So that's a real, that's a real consequence that we may be facing in the coming weeks. Uh, Janet, thanks again uh, for your time. We always appreciate having you on. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you. This is Janet Music from the Agri-Food Analytics Lab and Faculty of Management at Dalhousie University. And it's a beautiful holiday tradition, and you can help make it bigger and better this year. Joining us now is the founder of Gems for Gems, Jordan Guilford. Morning, Jordan. Good morning, Sue. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us. Uh, tell us about the Gems for Gems program. What is it? How does it work? Uh, sure. So we're a registered charity and we're registered nationally. Um, and this very special Christmas tradition actually extends uh, to the national reach. 
Uh, it's a very simple concept. It's a, um, a jewelry drive-in, and we collect gently used jewelry from women in the public. We clean it, package it in packages of three to five items. The women uh, can, can mix and match it, uh, and then we give it out on Christmas morning to survivors of domestic abuse across Canada in shelters. Incredible. Now you say kind of gently used, but are there certain items you can mention that the people have been donating that you did maybe you're even in need of right now? You know what? Um, essentially, the only thing we're not in need of uh, as far as people being able to donate them is toe rings. So we can pass on that. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, as short as that, which we only get the very odd toe rings. <laughs> That's but, funny. Uh, but yeah, everything under the sun we need, we want, um, uh, other than that. <laughs> I, that is funny. But, uh, you know, let's point out, too, that we're not asking for you to donate, you know, Grandma's diamonds. This <laughs> $25,000 right? diamond I mean, ring. that would be lovely, and who wouldn't want to receive that? But we're talking costume jewelry. We're talking anything that's pretty and lovely and that, you know, someone, a woman who's living in a shelter and will likely see nothing under the tree at Christmas, can you imagine how, yeah. how beautiful that would make you feel? Uh, you know what? It's um, I, I've said it before. It oftentimes in these situations where women are struggling to see themselves, uh, period, let alone in anything other than just black and white. This little gift can truly make them see themselves uh, in technicolor again. It's, it's really beautiful, and and you know what? It's such a simple way of being able to make someone's Christmas extra special by showing them that even though they, they're having a hard time showing up on their own radar, they're showing up on ours and they matter. And Jordan, what's uh, interesting to me is, uh, you know, before this service, uh, there was perhaps no outlet. And maybe you had a daughter or a friend who, who wasn't interested in your jewelry. What What has the response been from those women that you speak with who say, I did not know this existed. This is fantastic. I've got a lot of extra. Do you get a lot of those stories? Oh, my gosh. Do we ever get a lot of those stories? Absolutely. And this is the beautiful thing of the jewelry drives is that we all can contribute to it. No matter no matter how much of a collection we have, we all have something that we haven't used in a while and that we wouldn't miss. And I'm not asking you, like your point, to give uh, anything super precious. Although, you know what? We do often get uh, people sending in gifts from abusive exes and stuff like that. Mm. So things that at one time meant something and, and now have a very different meaning. Um, and they're wanting to be able to pay it forward and let that piece actually be used for something beautiful now. Jordan, how long have you been doing this program? I know you're the founder. You started Gems for Gems. How long have you been doing it in any concept at all of how many thousands and thousands of pieces you've handed out? Uh, yes, to both. Uh, I've been doing it since 2015. And uh, with the help of incredible women like you, Sue, <laughs> um, we've been able to do 22,000 Christmas gifts across Canada. <sighs> Yes, that's which awesome. Is just, it's remarkable, and it's it is because of the women in the community doing what they can, and it's it's beautiful. It has made a huge difference. All right, now we've got the, the social uh, here for you, the gemsforgems.com. Is that the best place to go for people to get more info and find out how they can use uh, your service? Absolutely, uh, gemsforgems.com. Also, we're active on all social media, so I'd, I'd appreciate if anyone who's interested in what we do can give us a follow and and help support and spread the word that way. Um, our drop-off locations are, uh, the official drop-off locations are stacked uh, in Chinook Center, and then all the Lola Lash Bars across the city, which we are so grateful for both organizations for stepping up. And then we also have some independent people that are just doing collections uh, with their family and friends as well. So that's also very encouraged.
So reach out at gemsforgems.com. Jordan, before we let you go, I just wanted to touch on this because people might recognize your name. We had you on not too long ago. We were talking about <laughs> another initiative that you're behind, and it's called Hope's Cradle. So give us an update because I know uh, this has gone uh, quite far forward since we spoke last. Oh, gosh. Thank you so much, Sue. Yes. Uh, so Hope's Cradle is one of our uh, initiatives under the Gems for Gems um, umbrella, and we're so proud that we can uh, now officially say that uh, we have uh, completed a cradle with um, Children's Cottage in Calgary, which is our first Hope's Cradle to the Safe Surrender location for women to anonymously and safely surrender their babies. It won't be open until January because they're, they're, it's in a brand new building and that's when the building will officially open. But we've got it across the line and we are constantly seeking more places to be able to host our cradles. Um, and it's very, very doable. So, Sue, I really appreciate you letting us highlight that. Wonderful. That's so great. Thank you. Fantastic. Keep doing what you do, Jordan. We appreciate mm-hmm. it. Thank you so much for your support, and, and have a great holiday season. You thank too, you. Jordan. Jordan. Thank you. Thank you. Jordan Guildford, founder of Gems for Gems, and again, online, all you need to know at gems, G-E-M-S, for gems.com.